If you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? I will be reading from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When I first started on this passage, I thought it would be one sermon on this passage. It has become two already, um, so we'll see how it, it goes. So we're going to have the Victory of Faith Part 1 today, and Lord willing, Victory of Faith Part 2 next uh, Lord's Day. This is the word of our Lord, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see Jesus and that we might see the things that you want us to do this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, The uh, famous French economist, at least famous if you're into economy and the study of economics, uh, the famous French uh, economist Frederick Bassiat said, Repetition may not entertain, but it teaches. Repetition may not entertain, but it teaches. John, the apostle, wholeheartedly subscribes to this truth. The repetition teaches. He keeps repeating the necessity of faith, love, and obedience in the Christian life. And this repetition should teach us at least two things. Faith Love and obedience are very important in the scriptures and in life in general. Repetition often signals importance. So the fact that John keeps on repeating this idea of faith, love, and obedience in the life of the Christian should tell us that this is something that the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to. The second thing that this repetition teaches us is that we need to hear it over and over again because we are prone to wonder from these three core tenets of the Christian life. Faith in Jesus, love for the brethren, obedience to the word of God. In these five verses that we just read, we have a microcosm of the whole epistle, which you would expect since John keeps on repeating himself over and over and over. I just remember, uh, I won't say his name because it's being recorded, but in the beginning of this series, uh, one of our members came to me, Pastor, it seems like every sermon is the same in this book. And yes, in some ways it is, because John keeps on repeating and repeating himself. And in these five verses, we have the whole entire book repeated again to us. John keeps on hitting the key, keeps on hitting on the key of the three tests of true faith that leads to assurance. 
right doctrine concerning Christ. We see that in verses 1 and 5. In verse 1, he says, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 5, he says, Jesus is the Son of God with everything that comes with being the Son of God. So he hits again on the test of assurance. Do you believe the right things about Christ? In verse 1, the second half, he talks about the test of love for the brethren. Do you love the brethren? In verse 3, he talks about obedience to the word of God. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Do you obey the Lord? And then in verses 4 and 5, he rephrases the idea of assurance in terms of overcoming the world. That's what we're going to Lord, we're going to look at next week. The idea of overcoming the world by our faith in Jesus Christ. And notice in these short five verses, how many words are repeated. And when you study the Bible, it's important to look at repetition of words in a particular passage, because repetition often indicates uh, emphasis of the passage. If you look at throughout these five verses, the word belief, believe, faith, which are all related words, are repeated time and again. The word born, begotten, begotten again, who related to one another, repeated. The word love is repeated. The word commandments is repeated. The word overcome and the word victory, which are the same kind of words in the original language, also repeated here. And that tells us, helps us structure our understanding of this particular passage. And notice that the passage itself is framed in terms of faith in Jesus Christ. We have bookends in the passage, verse 1 and verse 5, all about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These three characteristics, love for the brethren, faith in Jesus Christ, obedience to the word of God, are all very important and are so intertwined that we can't really separate them. We can only separate them to study them. Uh, have you ever played with Play-Doh? The, one, the type you buy at the store, not the type that you try to make at home. Uh, you buy at the store and they come in nice little individual colors, Right? so pretty and then a day later maybe two if you're lucky they're no longer this nice separate colors they have been mixed together right here and there you're able to see a little red or a blue or maybe a green over here and you're able to identify them but on the whole you can't separate them anymore and that's the the idea of these three concepts faith in Christ, love for the brethren, and obedience to the word of God. They are so intertwined that you can't really separate them. Yet, faith in Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible, is the foundational characteristic of the Christian life, from which all other characteristics flow. So a Christian is a Christian because he believes certain things about Jesus Christ. In verse 1, John says that a Christian is a Christian because he believes that Jesus is the anointed one from God. That's what Christ means, the anointed one from God, who came in fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament to redeem God's elect from bondage to sin. That's all there in that phrase that Jesus is the Christ. That's foundational for our faith. The Christian also believes that Jesus is the unique Son of God, which means that He is God Himself coming in the flesh. That's what John means there in that last phrase, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. However, there is more to the to faith in Christ than 
assenting to the proposition that Jesus is the promised Messiah. There's not less. The Christian faith is a fact-driven faith, but just acknowledging certain facts is not the totality of our faith. James addresses that when he's talking to the congregation he's writing to, and he sarcastically says, Oh, you believe in God? Great! So do the demons. So just acknowledging a set of facts about Christ is not true faith in Him. So simply subscribing to a biblically accurate confession of faith is not all that there is to faith. Faith is not less than that, but there's more to the idea of faith. It also includes personal faith in Jesus. That is, belief that the things that Jesus did, He did for me in my place. It also includes personal union with Him. Now, the best way to describe this idea of personal union with Christ is by looking at Galatians 2.20 and making that you, yourself. You don't have to turn there right now. I just want you to listen. There, Paul, as the representative Christian, gives his confession of faith. This is what it means to believe in Jesus, and that should be true of all of us. That's what faith in Jesus is. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm so united with Him that I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what true faith in Christ is. The fact that the life that we live now is not us living, it's Christ living through me. Theologians describe saving faith by dividing it into three elements. Theologians like to break things down into smaller, smaller, and smaller things. Otherwise, you know, schools will go out of business. Uh, you will not have PhD degrees anymore because in order to have PhD degrees, you have to break things into smaller and smaller things. But the, the distinction they make in faith is helpful. The three elements of faith are helpful for us to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that one of the elements of faith is knowledge. You must know the gospel. In order to be a Christian, you must know the gospel. Uh, Paul teaches that when he says in Romans chapter 10, in quoting from Isaiah, he says, Lord, who has believed our report, and then he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in order to have faith, you need to know the gospel. John says he wrote his gospel so that you may believe. So he says, here are these historical facts with theological significance, I'm going to record them so that you may know them in order to believe. So the first part of faith is actual knowledge. You need to know. You need to know that Jesus is the Christ. You need to know that He is the Son of God. But there's more. The second element of faith is assent. This is the intellectual or cognitive conviction that the knowledge one has acquired about Christ is indeed factually true, and that the provisions of the gospel corresponds exactly to one's actual needs. That is, not just know things about Christ, but acknowledge that those things are true about Christ, and that what Christ is offering is what you need. That's the second element of faith. But that's not all of, all of faith. Now, Paul says, for example, in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 1, 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for what? I know whom I have believed. Not only he knows facts about Christ, but he knows them as facts. 
These things are true about Christ, and this is what I need. But you can, you can acknowledge things that are true, and you can even say, yes, these are things that I need, but it doesn't mean that does anything for you yet, right? Most of us, well, I'll just use me. I know is I need I need I know the fact that I'm fat. I know the fact that I'm out of shape. I acknowledge those as true. And I know that I need to lose weight. And I know that there are really only two ways to do that. Very simple. Eat less, spend more calories. It's math. I know the facts will be true, and I know I need it. Has it worked for me yet? (laughs) (laughs) So just knowing to be true and knowing that you need it doesn't mean that you've appropriated for it yet. And that's the third element of faith. Trust. Assent. It's cognition passed into conviction and trust. It's conviction passed into confidence. Embracing Christ. Christ, you are what I need. You are who you say you are. You've done the things the Bible says you've done for me. I embrace it as mine. That's the third element of faith. And that's what being a Christian means. Knowledge. Assent. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said again in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am what? Persuaded. It's interesting that the Greek word for persuaded is actually the word for belief with a different ending in it. To be persuaded is to, to be convinced that certain beliefs are true. Paul was persuaded of that and embraced that. And to those who possess, if if this is you, to those who possess this kind of faith, the Father has given them power to become his children. Again, John, not in this epistle, but in the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. That's us, brothers. That's us, sisters. We know, we are, we are sent, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we, have been, we are children of the Lord. And I wanted you to notice here in verse 1, that faith that saves, faith that saves is always a result of God's gracious work in a person's heart. Look at verse 1, the first beginning of verse, the verse. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Our translation masks this a bit, but the, the being born of God precedes the believing. Uh, we use the New King James here. This is how the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates it. 
Everyone who believes presently that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God in the past. The being born of God is something that happened in the past and continues to bear fruit now. So true faith in Jesus Christ is a result of having been born. True faith in Jesus Christ is the result of regeneration. God regenerates the person. Regeneration just means a new birth. And as a result of that, that person believes. The scriptures also speak about this new birth in terms of a change of heart. That's a core promise of the new covenant. In a little bit, we're going to partake of Lord's Supper as we do every Lord's Day. And Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. A core element of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 is that God is going to give us a new heart. And because of that new heart, we're able to believe, to follow him and to do the things that the Spirit revealed to us. The Bible also speaks of this being born of God as a spiritual resurrection, being dead and then being made alive. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So faith, faith that saves, follows from a heart that has been changed, a heart that's been born again, a heart that's been resurrected from being dead in the trespasses and sins, and now is made alive in Jesus Christ. And notice that the new birth will inevitably result in love for the others who have also been born of God. Look again at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him, who begot, also loves Him, who is begotten of Him. In John's mind, if you've been born of God, you can't, but, you can't help but love others who also have been born of God. It is part of the new spiritual DNA to love the brethren. You can't help but do that. Think of the example of Paul. Paul is commissioned by the leaders in Jerusalem. Actually, he asks to be commissioned by the leaders of, in Jerusalem to go arrest and hurt Christians. So he's on the road to Damascus in order to do just that. Luke describes him as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Even though he only had permission to go arrest them, he had other plans for them. So he's there with that intent in mind. That's the desire of his heart. Then Jesus meets him, changes his heart, and the threats and murders are immediately replaced with fellowship with the people of God. As you keep on reading the account in Acts chapter 9, which is the original account of Paul's conversion, the account ends with this in verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. He spent, he dwelt with them. We know this only ended when Jews threatened to kill him. Immediately upon conversion, upon having a heart changed by the Lord, Paul loved the brethren. That's, that's true of all of us who have been changed by the Spirit of God. Notice next that we love the brethren 
by loving and obeying God. In verses 2 and 3, the apostle says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So uh, see how we're going from faith to love, to obedience, and you can't really separate them. Do you see how these three tests, these three Christian characteristics are so intertwined that you can't really separate them? You can't choose faith without love. You can choose love without obedience. You can choose obedience without love. They are all together here. And one of the ways that we love the brethren is by obeying God. And this teaches us that genuine love for God will result and will show itself in love for other Christians. It's interesting that Paul says in Galatians that in, uh, this is how he loved God. And instead of quoting the first great commandment, he quotes the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because you can't love God apart from that. Apart from loving the brethren. This also teaches us that it is impossible to obey God apart from loving the brethren. You can cross every T, and you can dot every I of the Bible, but if you don't love the brethren, you are not obeying God. It's as simple as that. If, if that's not you, if that's not what we do, we are at very best unpleasant, loud noises. That's what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding breaths or clanging cymbal. So if we are not loving the brethren, we can do everything else the Bible says, and all that that is, is really loud banging. If you have little children, if you've had, had little children, if you currently have little children, you know that there is a, uh, children and noise tend to go together. And there are sometimes you, well, I'm not going to say that because it's being recorded, but you, you feel like that the noise needs to stop no matter uh, what. All the, you know, it can be really reasonable things like mom or dad, it's usually mom, but there's never a satisfaction of a child saying mom once, is there? Is that mom, 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 and such a sweet word, so much love in being a mother. And yet, after the 1,567th time of that word being repeated in three minutes, you just wanted to make that stop. That's you and I, we now obedience to Christ without loving the brethren. Just that banging, 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 banging there. Now, at this point, it is important for us to define what love is because we are very good at disguising not love with love. Do you ever notice that? We're very good at disguising things that we like and want as not love, as less love. We are very good at disguising not wanting to love people as loving people. So what is love? And we're just going to look at 1 John, three passages in 1 John. We could go to 1 Corinthians 13, and maybe you should, we all should later on today as we go home. But three things that John says about love. First, love is others-oriented. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Verse 10. 
And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is others-oriented, focused on others. So if your definition of love has you at the center, then that's not love. Love costs something to the one loving. Look at verse 9 of the same chapter, chapter 4. In this is love, God. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. So, love costs something to the one loving. If your definition of love has you always gaining something, then that's not love. A third element of love that we find here in First John is this: that love is. Love is not a response to the one being loved. Love is not a response to the one being loved. You don't love somebody because he's done something for you. Verse 19 of chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. That's the pattern for our love. So if your definition of love demands that someone does something for you first, that is not love. Love and holiness go hand in hand. John says, we know we love the children of God by keeping His commandments. So if you, want, if you say you love the brethren, you're also saying that you're striving to live holy lives that are in accordance with the Scriptures. Love for the brethren will include obedience to God as He reveals His, his will to us in His Word. You can see the word commandment all over verses 2 and 3. And the word commandments refers to all the Bible. And it can be helpfully summarized by the two greatest commandments. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ was asked, Okay, what are the two greatest commandments? He says, love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being. That's the summary of all those things that fall there. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. The entire Bible can be filed in one of these two drawers. Either the draw of love your, the Lord with all your being, or the draw of love your neighbor is yourself. So say, ah, but Tito, I, I can't know the whole Bible to, in order to love my brother. Fine. Just remember these two things. Love God and love others. That, that, and if you can remember these two things, then you're in a pretty good way in loving the brethren. You know, in... In the Reformed Church as a whole, in the Bible-believing Presbyterian Church, I think we, out of a fear to become legalists in our approach to God, we have de-emphasized the importance of holiness. We have de-emphasized the importance of of an obedient life. Yet, the grace that is from God will demonstrate itself in holy lives, not just positionally, but also in practice. We're so afraid of adding something to our salvation that we have, I think, thrown the baby out of the bath water. Um, As you know, I'm not a super fan of John Piper. But if you can listen to his sermon on Together for the Gospel, it's on this, on this, it's worth it. It's free online, you can download it in whatever podcast uh, manner you download or just on t4g.org you can listen to there there is worth it we cannot love if we're not living holy lives love and holy lives are essential and that is the grace position 
If you look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and you can listen, listen closely, because this is important, but it's one of those passages, you're going to write it down, and you're going to read it later several times. In Titus 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We can see Christ. He's here. The grace of God is present to us in Jesus Christ. And then he says, teaching. This is what the grace of God is done, doing to us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God, the true manifestation of the unmerited favor of God, the, the thing that saves us apart from any works is that we are learning to deny ungodliness. We're learning to deny unworldly lusts. And we're living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So grace that is not linked to obedience is no grace at all. It's something else, but not the grace of the Bible. And then Paul says that Christ is doing that so that he can purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's what the grace of God does. If, if, if we're not zealous to good works, which is just obedience, we have not experienced the grace of God. If you're comfortable in just saying, oh, Jesus saved me, and it's all of Him, and I'm just going to sit here and just keep in my life for myself, selfishly, without paying attention to the Word of God, you do not know the grace of God. Because if you know the grace of God, you're going to be striving towards Holiness. We love the brethren when we are living lives that are being sanctified by the Spirit of God. We love the brethren when we are becoming more like Jesus Christ. This is not a passive existence. We work hard at becoming more like Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God is working in us to that end. Paul says that clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where it says, My beloved, you have always obeyed, not as in my presence, only, but now much more in my evidence, work out your salvation. Here, used in the sense of sanctification. Work out your sanctification. Work is not sit there and wait for something to zap you. It's not sit there and do whatever you want. It's work out your salvation. Work out your sanctification. Why? Because it's God who is working you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So if you're not working towards that, it means that God is not working in you. And you don't know the grace of God. And you cannot love the brethren. Thus, love for God and brethren is demonstrated in obedience to the word of God. And I'm starting to sense a part three uh, coming upon us. Look at what it says in verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Does this surprise you, what John says here? Does it surprise you that John says that God's commandments are not burdensome? It does to me. In all honesty, it does to me. It surprises me that He teaches us that obeying God is not burdensome. Because it often feels that way. Is that fair to say? Is that our experience? That often the commands of God feel burdensome? They often seem difficult. Why is that? Well, God's commandments become burdensome. To use the example for Eve. Remember Eve in in, in Genesis? In the perfect place. God says you can have of everything 
every tree, except for this one, everything else, and she's satisfied. Till Satan comes and says, God said you couldn't have this one? Man, that's rough. He wants you to bear the burden of not having of this one tree? And all of a sudden, her shift went from the goodness of God in all things to this one little commandment of not having of this one tree. Uh, became burdensome, literally the word is heavy, to Eve when Satan took her eyes off the goodness of God and turned to the loss of the flesh concerning that tree. Obedience to God becomes a burden when extra biblical requirements are elevated to the level of biblical necessities for our justification. Jesus says in, Psalm 20, in Matthew 23 that the Pharisees go out of their way to add heavy burdens to the disciples. And then they make them more of a child of hell than they are. God's commandments become a burden when we have divided heart that longs for the world more than we long for the kingdom of God. When we have one eye in the world and one eye in Christ, the commands of God become a burden. God's commandments become heavy when we're living in unrepentant sin. Proverbs 15 says, The way of the unfaithful is hard. Proverbs 28 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper. Obedience to God is a burden when we are misled by false teachers. In, in Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, the very elders that were the elders of this church that First John is written to. And he says this in verse 29, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves. The word savage is the same word translated as burdensome in First John chapter 3. These wolves are going to burden the church with things that are not from the Scriptures. Obedience is a burden when we view it as a means to be accepted by God. When we think that our acceptance before God is based on performance. Um, as you know, I'm taking classes at the, the Master's University. And there's a lot of work. And every week, Mondays for this term, is the day that every, all the work is to be done. And there's, I, I work really hard to get it all done. And... Um, there's this great joy when I click the last box on Canvas. Canvas is the um, medium that the university uses to report done work. And there's this, I've done it. I've achieved acceptance with the university. Till two hours later when the new dots of work do comes. And that exhilaration, that um, euphoria of having nothing to nothing do next line disappears. And now I have to start, oh, that hurts. <laughs> I have to start earning my acceptance with the university again by performing the tasks given to us. That's not the commands of God. But they become burdensome when we treat them that way. That every, you know, we wake up every day, Okay, today I'm going to obey God in everything, and then He's going to love me at the end. And then 8 o'clock in the morning comes, and that's no longer a possibility. And then it becomes a burden, and then you hope that next day resets. And the same thing happens. So the, 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 the commands of God become a burden when we're using them as a means to acceptance before the Lord. Remember, brothers and sisters, Christ has done it. He said, it is finished. 
We are accepted in the beloved. He has translated us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the son whom he loves. We are so united with Christ that when he looks at you, he sees the face of his son whom he loves eternally. So we don't have to carry the burden of having to perform to be accepted from the Lord. Lastly, obedience to God is a burden when we are not saved. And that might be the reality of some of us in this room. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says that the natural man cannot please God. That the law of God is a burden to them. Brothers, sisters, what God asks us to do is not a heavy burden. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, Come unto me, all you who are tired and who are heavy laden, who are burdened, and I will give you rest. For or because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what the Lord promises us. We have been completely recreated in order to do good works. And that's obedience. The Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we, old things have passed away. All things are new. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle says, verses 8 through 10, that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith and not of, not, and that not of our own, lest we should boast, for or because. What's the result of that? Because we were God's workmanship in Jesus Christ, created in Jesus Christ unto good works. That's what we designed. We cannot buy we cannot but obey the will of God. The Spirit of God, as John says in chapter 4, verse 4, is in us, enabling us to obey. Brothers, sisters, Christian obedience is supernatural, but it's not superhuman. And there's a difference there. The Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that nothing has overtaken us except what's common to man. We don't struggle with superhuman struggles. We may need the, we may need the supernatural help of the Spirit to Stand, but they're not superhuman struggles. Instead of thinking of obedience as a burden, let us think of it as a blessing, as something good. The right mindset will go a long way to do it. All right, we'll finish with this. Some day-to-day applications, three suggestions, right? So far has been thus says the Lord, Okay. Now I'm going to give you some suggestions on how to live out these things. Three of them, to be short. First is this. If you are really struggling to love others and to obey the Lord, check your faith to see if it's real. Don't be deceived. Check your heart. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Do that. Secondly, if you are struggling with the idea that the commandments of God are not burdensome, tonight, read through Psalm 119. It is 176 verses, but it's not difficult. It takes you 20 minutes. Read it through it. The psalmist time and again tells us how precious God's commandments are. He contrasts obedience to the word to following the ways of the world and shows that obedience is better than disobedience. Very practical. Read through Psalm 119 and let 
the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks to you about the preciousness of the commands of the Lord. Thirdly, and this is it, I'm going to finish here. Since you have been recreated in Jesus Christ to love the brethren, that's, that's what God designed you to do. You're a, a, a loving the brethren machine. Think of concrete ways you're going to do this this week. And two, two um, creativity exercises to help you think of ways to do that. One is, use a, a Bible site or a Bible software. You can go to BibleGateway.com and just search for one another in the New Testament. And see the list that comes. And those are all suggestions that you can implement in Loving the Brethren this week. Secondly, we have this great tool in our Constitution called the Larger Catechism. And in questions 128 to 148, they explain and apply the Ten Commandments. Those questions, 122 to 148, is the second table, the commands 5 through 10. Read through those, and you're going to come up with all kinds of ideas. Since Loving the Brethren is obeying the law, Come up with all kinds of ideas on how to love the brethren. We have been born of God, and because of that, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith impacts this life as we obey the word of God and love the brethren. Three elements of being a Christian. Believe in Jesus, love the brethren, obey God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would minister to us through it powerfully even today. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.